Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Mary proclaims the Lord's help toward his servant Israel, it's easy to reduce her prayer to yet another platitude about mercy from our perspective, elevating Israel in human terms. We like to do this because, let's face it, we identify with Israel. Oddly enough, In Scripture, we should identify with them, but not how you think. As we've said many times over the years on this program, there are no good guys in the Bible save God himself. There are only bad guys who sometimes act correctly because of the fear of God's commandments. The Magnificat is Mary's sad news that Israel is just another one of those bad guys. If you can accept this, please go ahead and identify with Israel and hope that God remembers his mercy, namely the instruction he gave to your fathers that made it possible for a few bad guys to sometimes act correctly. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 54 to 56. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 445 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The more I hear scripture, the more I'm convinced that platitudes about loving the neighbor and welcoming everybody are just that. They are platitudes. Everybody is for loving the neighbor until your neighbor is a violent, aggressive country. Everybody is for welcoming others and welcoming everyone until, in order to welcome them, you have to be like Zacharias and be personally canceled and have your temple dismantled in the mind of your guest. But that's how Luke works. No more platitudes. All are welcome. You know how they have that on your church signs. We've joked about this in the past. It doesn't work that way. Because when you put your poster, all are welcome, you are making out of yourself a deity. Because you are enthroned. And Luke is telling you, you have to be dethroned. So before we get to the point in the Magnificat where we discuss the promise that is outlined in Galatians, we first have to dismantle the presumption that we have any authority whatsoever to welcome anyone into anything, let alone 
the Roman household of God the Father. Remember that God put you in the land in Deuteronomy and he can take you out of the land. That is the message of the Magnificat. He filled you up and he can make you hungry. He gave you good things, he can take them away. It's only after this point has been emphasized with the emasculation of Zacharias firmly in mind that we now come to the child of the promise in Galatians through the proclamation of the Zerah of our father Abraham in the story of Scripture. We have been hearing about this reversal of fortunes that happen thanks to the strength of God and his will to keep everyone from being settled. God is the one who makes sure that his will happens, and the way that he makes sure his will happens is he has to upset the will of the other so-called powers, any human, any deity, any imagined force that might have power, God has to overturn and show them to be weak. To show his honor, to show his greatness, to show his kabod, he has to bring down whatever powers the humans might imagine. I've been working a lot in Hosea, and this is exactly the problem, is that the land thinks that she can go after whatever God to get whatever she needs, and the Lord has to remind her, no, actually, I'm the only one that provides anything. You're going off with your boyfriends makes you imagine you've got something. The problem now is you had a baby after sleeping with me and sleeping with your boyfriends, and now we don't know who the father is. And then it's up to the children. Who is your father? How are you acting? Who are you obedient to? Whose lesson are you listening to? Who is your teacher? That is functionally your father. So that's the big question in Hosea that I've been working through again and again and again. I find this always to be fruitful to go through those first three chapters of Hosea, and I've been fighting a lot against other scholarship that would assume that it's talking about the relationship between the Lord and the people. It's not about the Lord and the people. It's the Lord and the land. The people come later. The land comes before the people. And in this section that we're reading here, people think that they're the center. People think that their destiny and their desires and their abilities are the center of everything. They won't submit. That's why Zecharias was forced to submit. Oh, yeah, Zecharias, I don't want to have you say anything that's going to contradict what I have to say, so I'm just going to make sure you don't say anything. Here you go. That's how it works. I'm going to have no contradiction. Oh, people think that the center of the universe is the temple. Oh, I'm going to have to get rid of that because I'm the center of the universe. This is how the Lord has to function. That's why these reversals of fortune have to keep occurring. And most recently, he's been scattering the proud by showing his own strength, putting down the mighty by raising up those who are low. This is how the Lord flexes his muscle with his outstretched arm. Only by submitting to this is there any hope. In the next section, as we finish up this poem, we have to understand that the point of this is to put Israel in its correct place in the pecking order. And putting them low in the pecking order is not a punishment. 
It's just establishing the way that things were created to be. Everything's going to run peacefully if Israel accepts its station and accepts its function. It's when it tries to break out of that and create a function, to create a space for itself, are they going to bump up against God's outstretched arm. This past Sunday, Rich, I was trying to explain the Gospel of Matthew and the way in which we exploit the Gospel and co-opt it as a tool of Hellenistic virtuism, meaning we like to think that it's good to do good deeds. We like to think that it's good to be fair. And isn't it nice that we have these parables about fairness? And isn't it nice that we have this teaching in Matthew about grace and about how people who come late are treated just as well as people who come early? I'm thinking, for example, of the parable of the householder, where everyone gets paid the same wage. And then we start talking about socialism and equality and fairness. People twist the text all the time. You gave some absurd example where someone was using Paul's letter to the Thessalonians to explain why we shouldn't give assistance to the poor. I mean, this is the absurdity of the way people use the text. They twist the text to serve some human, political, philosophical principle, some virtue. I hate that word virtue, because the word virtue pertains to something human. You want to talk about your strength, your goodness, and it ain't happening in Scripture. In the example of the parable of the householder in Matthew, we want to say, hey, isn't it great that we're all treated fairly? But the parable could have turned out differently. The point isn't that God treats everyone fairly. The point is that everyone shares the same fate. Maybe God could have decided to pay no one anything and still dole out the work. Maybe God could have paid no one anything and half the people work and half the people don't work. Maybe he pays people for not working, and he doesn't pay people who do work. He can do what he wants. Why? Because that's how life works. But we all end up dead, six feet under, or buried in a cave, or whatever. We all share one fate. We are all the enemies of God. We are all his opponents. We've explained that already in discussing the Magnificat. There are no good guys. The problem with the way that we hear Scripture is we approach it trying to figure out who the good guys are so that we can be with the good guys, but there are no good guys. In Scripture, there is only one who is good. The rest of us are bad guys who sometimes act correctly, but that doesn't make us good. And when we act correctly, it's because we are following the commandment. It's the commandment that's good. Why is this important at this juncture? Because he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The mercy here comes through the fear that Mary spoke of just a few verses ago, which puts Israel 
in the correct frame of mind to understand, as you were just saying, Richard, their proper place. They are not the good guys. They are one of the many bad guys on the face of the land. They are no better than any of the other nations on the earth, any of the other peoples. They just sometimes act correctly through the instruction. And that has been their advantage, that they receive the instruction first. They're not good guys. They're not better. They're just bad guys who sometimes act correctly. And the difficulty of this teaching is that now they have to accept that the other bad guys, the people they considered less than themselves, can also act correctly. They're no better than them. They're all the same. I want to stress this. The point of Chrysostom's homily is not that it's okay to come late to church, which is how lazy people hear the homily. The point is the point of the gospel, that we all share one fate. Whether you come early or not, it doesn't matter, but you should come early because the Lord is coming. But there's no advantage if you come early because we all share one fate. That's the difficulty of the scriptural message. If you want to be lame and use it as an excuse to come late, which is what 99% of people do when they read scripture halfway and then check out, you can be lame. This is the test. Now that you know, Zechariah, that you're no different than a prostitute, are you still going to be faithful to this teaching? Or are you going to check out? That's the test. Thank you, Father, for bringing up this passage one more time, because this passage in Matthew of, you know, who gets paid what, and the way that Chrysostom uses it so beautifully in his Paschal Sermon, I mean, it's fantastic. The boss says, didn't we have an agreement? Didn't you agree to one talent? And they're, yeah, but those guys, they got paid a talent. Right. But didn't you agree to a talent? Like, why are we talking about them? The pure envy of the first people who came, how dare they get the same amount as somebody else who wasn't there? This is the might that has to be brought down from their throne because they say, oh, never mind, this was not fair. It's like, fair? I'm 100% fair. You and I agreed. One talent. Here's your talent. Where's unfair? I mean, this is the funny thing is that they are demanding mercy. They are demanding extra. They are demanding more than they agreed to. How do you demand from the one who is in charge of paying you? You know, you and I were talking earlier. It's like at work, like there's a clear pecking order. Like if you're boss's boss tells you to do something and then your boss says don't do it you're in a dilemma you're in a dilemma because there's a pecking order but it's not up to you and most likely you're going to get crushed in some way (laughs) because you're at the bottom of the order so here in this passage he helped his servant it's pedos which is like also a child this is used in the old testament as well the nar which is either a boy or a servant in remembrance of his mercy. And I find that very fascinating, and I never thought very long about that. The reason why he decided to help 
his child, his son, his boy, his servant, Israel, was because he remembered his mercy. He remembered his mercy, and that's why he decided to help. We call on God to remember, because like you said, he's the boss. He can forget to pay us. He can run out of funds. He can use his funds on something else. Maybe he wanted to have a nice dinner with his friends and ended up with no more money to pay his workers. And then you're stuck. He's just got no money. But because he remembered, he wanted to show mercy to his servant. Counting on this mercy at the end of this poem, in the end of all this turmoil of up going down and down going up and sideways and this way and the other way, in the end, it's that the Lord might remember his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed, I'm going to correct your translation there, Father. It's his sperma, his spermati, forever. So you correctly talked about this at the beginning of the episode. It's about the zera. It's about the seed. In spite of what the translation said in the King James, it actually does say seed. But he remembered the mercy to Abraham back in the day, many generations before, back when things were clean, the slate was clean, and everyone was acting as they were supposed to, eh, more or less. I don't know if that ever actually happened. But back in the day, he said there was going to be mercy. Back then, he said things were going to be made straight and tidy, and everyone was going to be back in their position. Mary hopes and prays here that God might remember his mercy that was testified to in the Torah as having been spoken to their forefathers about their seed that would come later, of which Mary finds herself a part. So all this turmoil, all the turning up and down, the only way we can hope for peace, the shalom, the final accounting, the order that we finally find is that God might remember his mercy. Mercy in observance of the commandment. There are no good people in scripture. There is only the one who is good in the heavens. There are bad actors in scripture who sometimes act correctly in observance of the Lord's commandments. So it is mercy in view of the fear of God's instruction. I want to keep going back to this beautiful teaching in the Magnificat, Richard, of the marriage between mercy and fear. It is the fear of the instruction. That is the thread throughout Scripture, the observance of the commandments. It is the fear of God that leads to the observance of his commandments that saves us from our own corruption, our own wickedness, which is a technical term in Scripture, as you know. So the destruction of the temple, the putting down of Zacharias, the expulsion from the land alluded to in this mechanism in the Magnificat. The constant pressure, once you're brought into the household of God, that you could be taken out. This constant reminder that no one is entitled. This pressure in observance of God's instruction. 
It's all pressure to walk the line, the rule of the gospel Paul mentions in Galatians. That is what it boils down to. That is what leads to this mercy for his servant Israel. Because it's only when we act according to the commandments that we realize the potential benefits of the hope of God's wisdom. Because if your neighbor is a warring country and you submit to the teaching of Jeremiah and you refuse to defend your country and therefore attack the prophet and instead you embrace the prophet and you embrace the warring country that's attacking you, there's no guarantee that it's good news for you. In fact, it's most likely that it will end up in exile and destruction for you. But the promise of Scripture is that it will achieve what it intends to achieve for itself, which might be at your expense. That's the difficulty here. Remember the parable of the householder in Matthew. You, because you want to view it from a human point of view, are self-satisfied from the vantage point of whatever ideology you bring to the text that, well, it's about fairness, Father Mark, and we all get paid in the end. No. No, it's not about fairness. Because some people don't get paid, and God is in control of everything, according to Scripture. So now what? Now what? So what are we talking about here? Is this a magic formula for everyone to get what they want? Or is this text about how to act and what our duty is? Because in life, there isn't a payout and a victory for everybody. But there is a duty for everybody. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. In Scripture, you know, we read it, we imagine, okay, three months, what did they do? Did they, like, go on outings? Did they go mushroom picking? You know, what did they do together for three months? Scripture has one thing that Mary did. Mary came, the Holy Spirit animated John the Baptist. She recited a beautiful poem about the mercy of God and how he reverses what humans desire and what humans think and what humans believe. And then she hung around for a while and left. But the focus is that this is the poem. This is the teaching. Mary came to deliver a teaching. The Spirit drove her. The Spirit animated Elizabeth's son. And the teaching came. This is what's important. So as we think about the Virgin Mary and we pray and we think about these things, Mary has a very specific function here. There's more time in Luke at this point, talking about this teaching. This teaching is central to what Mary's function is in the Gospel of Luke. So it's natural for people to imagine there's a bigger function, but according to Scripture, this is the function. So we have to listen and understand that this is the reason why she came for three months, is to deliver this teaching. It's ominous when you put it that way, Rich, to the extent that she represents the community. And those who talk about being in the church and are proud and boast of their community and of their status in the church, 
should hear the Magnificat during Orthros and shudder. Because every morning before the liturgy, when you hear this text, you're being reminded by the Gospel of Luke that God brought you into this community and he can take you out. God offered you this hope and he can withdraw it. Moreover, he offered you this hope so that others could receive hope. And if you don't walk the line according to his commandments in observance of his commandments through the fear of his holy name, for the sake of those outside of his household, he will put you outside of his household. And it's not about institutional boundaries and excommunication and all of that. It's about the coming judgment. Because ultimately, those who are in the household of God the Father and outside the household of God the Father, they are not visible to human eyes in this life. There is one judge whose throne is in the heavens. It is he who sees all. He is our judge. He will determine who is walking according to the rule of Paul's gospel on that day. But for our part, each time we hear the Magnificat, we are reminded that we can be taken out of the land just as easily as we were put in. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.